Thanks, guys. If you have a Bible with you, open up to the book of Galatians. If you don't have a Bible with you, if you use a digital device, try that. If you don't have either, put your hand up, someone will give you a Bible. I'm hoping that you uh, hear God's voice this morning because mine has been a little under pressure during the week. I'm coming, uh, coming out of a cold. I also have a confession to make. I shaved this morning. I never shave on a Sunday. I also wore a shirt this morning. I never wear a shirt on a Sunday. I usually wear a T-shirt or a hoodie. And as I was getting ready to come this morning, I thought to myself, why did I shave? Why did I wear a collar? And you know what I think the answer is? I think it's because I think it will make a difference to you. I thought somehow if I'm clean shaven, you'll think better of me. Or if I wear a shirt, you'll sort of think that that's better than a preacher in a T-shirt. I wonder how much I learned really out of reading this uh, passage. Uh, This is really loud, guys. Can we just kill the foldback? Thanks. Galatians is a letter. We, call it, we say the book of Galatians. Actually, we should say the letter to the Galatians. It's a letter, and it was a letter to a church, not a letter to unbelievers, a letter to a church who seemed to have forgotten or had been led off the rails of the gospel, the gospel which was all about grace, not about works. It tells us one thing in particular. The gospel is not just for non-Christians, not just for unbelievers. It's for us. It's for people who already have accepted Christ because it's not just the way to get into the kingdom of God. It's the way to live in the kingdom of God. I'll say that again. It's not just the way to get into the kingdom of God. It's the way to live in the kingdom of God. That has hit me so hard this uh, last couple of weeks as I've been thinking about this. These people in Galatia, their previous problem had been a failure to obey God. They had been rebellious, not interested in God at all. But they had a new problem now, and their new problem was that they were relying on their good behaviour in order to earn God's approval. All of a sudden, they'd been introduced to this concept of works in order to gain God's approval. And so they'd gone from one problem, rebellion, to a different problem, legalism. They had bought into a lie that had been told to them, by some Jewish teachers who said, yep, followers of Jesus, good, good idea. Don't forget to keep the Old Testament law, the dietary laws, the circumcision, etc. Jesus was apparently not enough. And the problem wasn't, wasn't that they were teaching circumcision. Circumcision was not the issue. The problem was that they were adding anything at all. It wasn't that they were adding circumcision. It actually didn't matter what it was that they were adding. The problem was that they were adding full stop. And so although they were a church, Paul has told them that you've lost your grip on the gospel. You've actually forgotten what this is all about. So don't forget, this is a letter. It's not intended to be read in little slabs like we're doing. That's one of the reasons why your small group material says read Galatians twice, not read verses 1 to 7. It was meant to be read as a big piece. And we're just looking at one little slab. I I, uh, liken it to when I get a long email 
Sometimes I read it all and I think, yeah, okay, I get the gist of what this guy's on about. I press save or close and I put it back into my inbox. But if I need to be reminded about what actually that person thought about a particular issue, I go back and I look at the paragraph where he mentioned that and I think, yeah, okay, he had, he had a real issue with this or he had something important to say about that. And that's what we're doing here. We're just revisiting a paragraph in this letter and we're saying, okay, let's have a look at what, when he touches on something particular, what does Paul say? It also means that the, the meaning, what is intended in these, in this, these paragraphs that we're going to look at uh, in chapter 5, is heavily influenced by the rest of the book. We're not looking at them in isolation. And so we're going to think about what has been said previously in this letter and what has been, what is to come. So I'm going to read, I'm going to read uh, with you, not to you, but with you, Galatians chapter 5, the first 15 verses starting at verse 1. And I'm reading from the NIV, I don't mind if you have another version. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever he may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. <coughs> Excuse me. If I'd have thought about it uh, at the right time, I would have suggested that we call this preaching sermon, uh, sorry, this preaching series, uh, The Amazing Grace, instead of The Amazing Race. And in the theme of that, thanks, someone got it. Uh, <laughs> and in the theme of that uh, TV series, if you've seen it, it's a reality show and people get sent on travel and they're in such a hurry to get from one place to the other place that they can't enjoy the scenery, the camera has to do it for them, uh, and then 
they run and they puffed out and they land on the mat and they get told whether they're first or third or last. And sometimes if you're first, you get a prize, and if you're last, you get kicked out, and then you get to say how much you've enjoyed it. And if you don't say that, you get to do your interview again. <laughs> and it's really real. But one of the things they do on this TV show is called a detour. And, you know, the guy and his voice says, a detour is where two contestants have to do blah, 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 blah. And he goes on. A detour here is when we're just going to press pause on the passage and we're going to talk about a concept or a word that comes up uh, in this passage. Uh, and so we are going to have a number of detours along the way here. A teenage boy once told his parents, he confronts them and he says, listen, mum, dad, I'm leaving home. I'm running away. And there's nothing you can do to stop me. I want excitement and adventure. I want beautiful women and money and fun. I want freedom. And I'm not finding those things here at home. So I'm leaving. And don't try to stop me. And he heads for the door and his father jumps up and runs after him. Dad, stop. I said, don't try to stop me. Mate, he says, I'm not trying to stop you. I'm coming with you. Everyone has their ideas of what freedom means. Well, I did that when I was young. I said to my parents, hey, I'm leaving home. I'm running away. And, of course, now I look back and my parents were totally wise to me. like, okay. Now we go up, sit in the woodshed, get cold, <laughs> come home. I thought I wanted freedom, but I really didn't understand what that meant. And we've got to ask ourselves this. Why is it that all of a sudden Paul is talking about freedom? Isn't this... A, about grace by sorry salvation by grace isn't this book all about grace and not works how is it now that we're talking about the freedom concept well i'm glad you asked that question let's go and have a look at the first six verses it is for freedom that christ has set us free stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery these people were being told that they had to be circumcised in order to be saved. But hang on a minute. Why is Paul saying again, don't go back again to the burden of slavery? These were not Jewish people. They were not going back to circumcision. Why does he say again here? Why does he say don't go back again to a yoke of slavery? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why I think he says that. It's because they were exchanging one form of slavery for another. Previously, yes, they had been slaves. They'd been slaves to sin. They were not legalistic before. They were rebellious. They had turned their back on God and they said, no, you are, I'm going to do it myself. Without God, I think I can still do it. I can save myself. And when we do that, we become slaves to sin. We become slaves to the things that we think will save us. I might make my master money. I might make it power. I might make it pleasure. Whatever it is that you make your master, you'll become a slave to it. And if we don't have Christ as our master, we become slaves to something else. The Galatians had been previously slaves to those things and then they had come to know Jesus and they had been set free from those things Things. And now Paul's saying, hey, guys, you're just going from one end of the spectrum way off to the other. You've been slaves to one thing, 
You've accepted Jesus. He set you free from that. And now you're choosing a different master. You're now not choosing Jesus as your master. You're choosing legalism. Legal rules. Strict compliance with a set of rules which don't make a difference to your standing with God. We saw it in verse 4, uh, sorry, in chapter 4 previously. How is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Paul said, don't go back there. You were in a prison cell and Jesus came and unlocked the door and threw it open and said, you're free. Why would you walk out, have a look around and walk back in? Why would you do that? Mark my words, says Paul in verse 2. I'll tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Wow. That's a big statement. No value to you at all. How is it that Christ can be of no value? I think it's because Christ is either all or nothing. Christ is either all or nothing. I came across a concept as I was uh, reading this and a little light bulb went off in my head. And let me illustrate uh, with an example the contrast between all or nothing and second chance. Who thinks Jesus has given them a second chance? Good. Now I'm going to tell you why I think you're wrong. I, I just have to do that sometimes. Uh, when, in Victoria, when you have a driver's licence, you get demerit points. You speed too often, you rack up more points. And I know a few of you have been in this situation. Uh, you've come to the limit of your points and you've got to make a decision. Do I lose my licence or do I play this thing called double or nothing? There's probably some fancy word for it Vic Rhodes have got, but it's really called double or nothing. Okay? And the double or nothing rule says... If I can go for a certain period with no demerit points, then all my demerit points will be gone and I didn't have to serve the penalty that would have otherwise come to me. So let's say I get 12 points, I'm supposed to lose my licence for three months, but if I go for a year with no points, then all my points get wiped off and I don't lose my licence. But, so that's the nothing, right? But if I get one demerit point in that 12-month period, then... My penalty is not three months. My penalty is six months without my licence. Yeah, That's the double. Double or nothing. The double or nothing system gives me a second chance. It says, I've failed to meet the rules. You have another chance. Sometimes we think Jesus gives us a second chance. But let me tell you this. Who is responsible, when I get the double or nothing rule applied to me, who is responsible for whether I keep my license or not. It's me, isn't it? It relies on me, on my good behaviour. Can I tell us this? I don't think Jesus gives us a second chance. Because if Jesus gave us a second chance, it would be like saying, okay, guys, you've all... I was going to say stuffed up. Some people don't like that expression. You've all done very badly. Very, very badly. But I tell you what, I'm going to wipe the scoreboard clean, there is no longer any demerit points, and I'll give you a second chance. Okay, and so between now and when you die, see how you go. And if you can get no demerit points in that period, you can come to heaven. 
do you see what I'm saying? Jesus didn't give us a second chance. Jesus says, you have no chance. You have no chance. I've got no chance. I can't play double or nothing with Jesus. It's not a second chance proposition. It's something completely different. Because if that were true, if Jesus gave me a second chance, then actually it would be me saving myself. It would be saying, yeah, I got it wrong the first time, but boy, I did well the second time. Yes, I'm in. It's not like that. Jesus says the rules are there to show you one thing and one thing only. You can't do it. We can't do it. Jesus says, I wanted you to know that. I wanted you to know that without me, you can't do it. This is not about second chances. You need to rely on something other than the double or nothing system. This is not about demerit points or merit points. This is about something completely different, and that is called grace. That is called grace. And grace says, I show up to the judge with a huge list of demerit points. It's longer than my arm, and the judge looks at me and he says, well, Andy, it's a pretty serious penalty for this kind of thing. And I say, yeah. But, Your Honour, I'd like to plead an unusual defence. And he says, well, what is it? And I say, it's the Jesus defence. And when I plead the Jesus defence for my wrongdoing, the judge doesn't pretend that I've done nothing wrong, but yet he, God, declares me not guilty. Not because I'm perfect, not because my list is shorter than your list, not because my list is longer than your list, because I pled the defence of Jesus. When we sing that song, my one defence, my righteousness, oh Lord, how I need you, that's the moment when Jesus is our one defence. When we start thinking that our good deeds or our acts of service or our religious observances or the things we abstain from, will somehow earn God's approval, we are actually devaluing Christ. We're saying, I'm not relying on Jesus. I'm actually trying to do some of this myself. Because Jesus is either everything we need, or he's not. Yeah? And if he's not everything, then you've got to do something. And if you've got to do something, then Jesus is not everything. I like that idea of trying to do something. You know why it appeals to me? Because deep down inside, I think it comes from a place of pride. And in relation to pride, I'm a bit of a subject matter expert. Not out of study, out of practice. Pride says... I earned this. I deserve this. I'm not as bad as. It's not like I... I'm better than... Dot, dot, dot. 
If I'm trying to do anything to earn God's approval, then I'm devaluing Christ. Now, play the music in your head. No, 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 no. A detour. A detour is. Legalism is our first detour. I just want to correct a couple of mistakes uh, that I have made in my head. I don't know whether you've done them too. Let me say this. It is not legalistic to obey God. Hmm? Hang on. Thank you, brother. It's not legalistic to obey God. It is not legalistic to strive to obey God. Jesus says that that is an act of love. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. However, legalism makes those not an act of love, but an act of pride. Legalism says, I do these things so that I can get. Legalism says, I do these things so that I can have. Legalism or a legalistic spirit says, what action of mine is going to make me right with God? What's, what can I do uh, to improve my standing with God? What behaviour will make God love me more? What can I do so that I can get more of God's grace in my life? Did you hear that one? What can I do to get more of God's grace? Those two things do not belong together. You do not earn grace. You can't earn grace. If you could, it's not grace anymore. It's something different. It's like frequent flyer points, right? Grace is grace because it just comes. It just comes. I think you get the message. Verse 3. We are going to pick up the pace, by the way. Verse 3. Again, I declare to you, uh, to, to every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he is obligated to obey the whole law. This all comes back to the all or nothing principle. Paul says, Jesus is either everything or he's nothing. And then he says, and by the way, if you want to go back into the Old Testament law, then it's everything or nothing. Don't be picking and choosing. This is not a Pentateuch supermarket. Right? You can't just go in and pick and choose the bits that you think you want to hang on to and say, but I'll rely on Jesus for the rest. I'll be a Sabbath keeper, but Jesus will forgive me for eating pork. You can't pick and choose. Jesus is either all or nothing, and the Old Testament law, if you want to go back there, then it's everything, comply with a whole lot, or you can't. James, James chapter 2 says, Forever who, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. In other words, you can't rely on the law unless you keep it all perfectly. And for the last however many thousand years, the Jewish people had learned that they couldn't do that. What were they thinking to want to go back there? I think that's one of the things that Paul is, is trying to grapple with here. Guys, what are you doing? Don't go back. If you want to go back, then you've got to take the whole thing. And if you take the whole thing, you can't do it. And you need a saviour. And that we, we've just been talking about that with you. That was what I brought you. That was the message, the good news. It was real good news. Don't dilute it down. The circumcision party, he says, can't choose some parts of the law and then ditch other parts. You've got to take the whole lot. It's all or nothing. And now that you've heard the gospel, that you don't have to take it at all. These Old Testament rules don't get you 
approval from God, why would you want to go back there? Dum, dum, dum. Amazing Grace music. Another detour. Verse 4 to 6 reads this. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace, but by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for those sorry, for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressed expressing itself through love. Three words that come out here. You won't read the word sanctification in that passage, but let me tell you about these three words. Justification. Justification is when I was standing in front of that judge and he declares me not guilty. It is an event. I get a right standing with God, not because I'm actually righteousness, sorry, not because I'm actually righteous, but because I get to play the Jesus defence. I put it on the table and I said, I rely not on my own righteousness, but on that of Jesus. And God says, yep, I accept. Not guilty. I'm deemed righteous. I get declared not guilty. Sanctification. Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Jesus. It is not, repeat, not an event. Sometimes we think that uh, when someone accepts Jesus and decides to follow Jesus and make him the Lord of their life, we think somewhere between when they went to sleep that night and wake up the next morning that they will become either like you or me or like Jesus. Our hang-ups don't disappear overnight. God works on us. I thought about this illustration. Now, I've never been to Disneyland and I've always been a short person and one of my big fears of going to a place like Disneyland is that I wouldn't be tall enough to get on the rides. So imagine if I showed up at the Disneyland gate and the height restriction is, you know, there somewhere and I'm thinking, man, there's some way of something I've got to do to get my money's worth. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sneak out of my backpack the biggest form of, form of uh, platform shoes you've ever seen and I'm going to put them on and look at me now, I passed the test and I get in. When I walk in the gate and I'm headed for the first ride, what do you think I'm going to do with those shoes? I'm going to take them off or keep them on? I need to keep them on, don't I? Otherwise, I'm not going to ride. I'm not going to enjoy this. Part of the Galatians message is this, and I've said it before already. The gospel is not just how to get into the kingdom. The gospel is how to be in the kingdom, how to live in the kingdom. It's for us. The gospel is not just something that happened back when you accepted Jesus. The gospel is something that we live with every single day. Is why, it is why Paul is writing to Christians. He's writing to a church here. He's saying, hey, slap across the face. Listen up. This gospel matters to you all the time. 
not just back when you accepted Christ. Your outward acts don't count for anything in your being justified, whether they're good or bad. Your good works don't get you extra points, and your bad works don't take away points. Jesus did the work for you to be able to be justified before God. Jesus is the only defence that you can play. If you play a defence of, yeah, well, I never killed anyone, that doesn't count. Yeah, but I went to church every week since I was six and now I'm 66. That, that also doesn't count. You can't play those cards. Can I also tell you, our outward acts don't make us sanctified. Our outward acts do not make us sanctified. They don't make us anything more like Jesus. Why? Because they're external. And we, can, we become sanctified. We become more like Jesus by the work of the Holy Spirit. That is internal. Get to know God and you can count on him starting to change you from the inside. I've got fruit trees in my house. How do I get those fruit trees to bear fruit? It's not by sticky taping fruit to them. But is that not what we sometimes do with ourselves? I want to become a better person, so I'm going to start externally to model the behaviour of a good person. And you know what I do? I end up, I start to live a lie. I start to get into hypocrisy, pretending that I'm a good person inside knowing that I'm really not. I actually need to ask God, please God, change me on the inside. I don't want to sticky tape oranges to my tree. I want it to be bearing fruit from the inside out. I've got to ask you a couple of questions. Is Jesus all or is he nothing? Because if he's not all, then he is nothing. Am I serving God to be loved? Or am I serving God because I'm loved? Did Jesus give you a second chance? Or is he your only chance? How might you be trying to earn God's approval? What can you do to remind yourself of the truth of God's amazing grace? How might you be able to remind a friend of the truth of God's amazing grace. And of that last one there, is Jesus my practical salvation? One of our small group questions uh, really challenged me the other day because, uh, and I share this with my group, those of you who uh, might remember, one of the questions was about, you know, how is it that we uh, place emphasis on our works? And I thought to myself this, how would I feel... If I was suddenly unable to serve, I become physically incapable of doing the things right now that I do in Christian service. Maybe I become unable to speak, and so I can't stand and share with you what I've learned through God's word. I can't pray at meetings. I can't cook people a meal. I can't give them a ride in my car. I can't give free legal advice here and there. I can't lead youth group. How would I feel about my standing with God then if I was stuck at home, unable to serve in the ways that I've been serving? I'll tell you how I would feel. 
Personally, I'd feel terrible. <coughs> I would feel useless. I would feel that I've contributed nothing to God's kingdom. And yet, at that point when I was contributing nothing to God's kingdom, worse, when I was an enemy of God's kingdom, God said, hey, Andy, I love you. I want you. If I think that somehow my acts of service will earn God's approval, I missed it completely. I missed it. And I have to remind myself that the moment that I accepted Jesus, that same grace is what I've got to live with every day. I don't get in by grace and then have to earn my right to stay. I stay by grace in God's kingdom. Verses 7 to 12. Paul goes on and says, Hey, you were going well. What happened? This kind of idea does not come from Jesus, he says, and I'm confident that whoever it is, you're going to accept that view and this person's going to pay the price. And before we jump in and say, yeah, they really did get it wrong. Sometimes we do the same, do we not? We think that when a person chooses to follow Jesus, yeah, they will, they will be changed. They'll be changed instantly. Sometimes we do it. Sometimes we do. When we come to church, we try to leave our hang-ups behind. We pretend that we don't have any. It's funny, isn't it? We're a church who believes that we're a mess and we need Jesus, and then we come to church and pretend that we're not a mess because I've got Jesus. Actually, I'm still a mess. I don't know about you. I'm still a wreck. And every time I get ready to preach, I'll get reminded of that. I'm a wreck. I need to confess that to you. I need to say that to myself often. I'm a wreck and I still need Jesus. I needed him as much then as I do now. Paul says, this doesn't look much like Jesus. Think about what Jesus did. I went scouring through the Gospels, looking for the times that Jesus provoked the legalists the Pharisees, who were so into rules that they had like, ditched everything and everyone else. Man, he did a lot. I'm, I don't know who the modern-day equivalent would, would be these days, but Jesus was super provocative. He would like look him in the eye in the middle of church and go, do you think I should heal this guy in church? Knowing what they were thinking. He got... Totally hammered for heaps of stuff, breaking heaps of rules. His disciples didn't fast like John's disciples were fasting. He let them pick grain on the Sabbath. He healed people, not just on the Sabbath, but in the church, in the synagogue. And then he eyeballs the Pharisees and he says, hey, you'd pull a donkey out of a hole, wouldn't you, on the Sabbath? Would I not heal a fellow human being? He eats food without washing his hands in a particular way. He hangs out with tax cheats. He goes, he goes and talks and befriends prostitutes. He goes to dinner with people whose reputation is appalling. And then Jesus says this, Hey, guys, you legalists, you have invented so many rules that have such a ridiculous outcome that you nullify God's word. And he gives them an example. You told, you know, 
honour your father and mother, says God. But you've created so many rules that you let someone say, sorry, mum and dad, I know you'd love me to help you and that would be a loving thing to do, but it's the Sabbath and whatever I'm going to do today is for God, not for you. So I can't help you with the dishes today. And Jesus says, you do many things like that. You do heaps and heaps of things like that. And I started to ask myself, what is it that I have done? What is it that we unconsciously do as a church that come from a place of wanting to obey God and ends up being things that hurt other people, that harm, that show no love at all? Think about what Jesus stood for, says Paul. It had nothing to do with legalism. Jesus neither commended anyone for their outward religious acts, neither did he condemn anyone for their outward moral failures. Remember the woman who was caught in adultery? She was about to be stoned and they dragged her in front of Jesus and Jesus has words with those people. He says, well, really? Are you going to apply the rule? The rules evenly here? This circumcision nonsense, says Paul, has nothing to do with Jesus at all. It doesn't come from Jesus. It doesn't look like Jesus. Don't have anything to do with it. And just in case you're wondering, says Paul, I've not been preaching this message. It wasn't just that I forgot to tell you about the circumcision thing. It is not a thing. It's not there. In fact... So appalled am I by this, so opposed am I to this movement that I have particular wishes for the circumcision party that they don't stop at circumcision. And there's a collective wince through the male members of the audience. The message puts it this way. If I were preaching preaching that old message, no one would be offended if I mentioned the cross now and then because it would be so watered down that it wouldn't matter one way or the other. Why don't these agitators, if they're so obsessed with circumcision, go all the way and castrate themselves? Wow. Here's some questions for you. What am I doing to hide or deny my hang-ups? Do I come here on a Sunday and pretend that I don't have my own set of hang-ups? I do. I know I do that. And I'm sorry for doing that. If you think I'm a good person, well, I'm sorry. I've fooled you by pretending that I don't have my set of hang-ups. What am I doing to earn the approval of others? What's your equivalent of shaving on a Sunday when you preach? What example am I setting for others, for my kids? Am I setting the example of grace? Or am I setting the example of approval based on works? Last few verses say this. You were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge your sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in this command. Love your neighbour as yourself. If you keep on hitting, sorry, biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. I used to go to school with a guy, in, this is a long time ago in primary school, I won't say his name, just in case he listens online or in case he's here somewhere. <coughs> he used to swear. 
I was pretty appalled by that. I'd, I grew up in a pretty uh, conservative Christian home, and I hadn't heard some of the words that he used to say. But he used to swear, and I said, hey, you can't say that. He'd say, yeah, I can. I'd say, are you a Christian? Yeah. Well, then you can't say that. He'd say, yes, I can. God will forgive me. I think he missed the point. And when you're in grade two or three, of course, you probably are going to miss the point of that. My exercise, the exercise of my freedom, my Christian freedom, does actually set me free from a whole lot of rules. There is only one rule left. It is the law of love. The law of love. Use your freedom, says Paul, but don't abuse your freedom. Yes, we're free from the law, but it doesn't mean we go out and do whatever we please. Because when you do whatever you please, if you do that selfishly, you're actually putting yourself in front of others, and that is not loving. Use it in a way that expresses love for each other. When I use my freedom for my own pleasure, my own purposes, and disregard what you might think or what impact it might have on you, Actually, I'm infringing the one law that Jesus brought, the law of love. I'm impinging on your freedom. Indulgence. Indulgence is not an act of love. It's not freedom. Indulgence, if I keep on like that, is actually going to take me further and further back into where I was before. Slavery to sin. Worshipping the things that will bring me pleasure. Without really thinking, although I might have freed myself from the burden of rules, sometimes I haven't freed others from them. Sometimes I haven't freed you from the burden of my own rules. Without thinking, sometimes I place my behavioural expectations on you. And you might do the same, I don't know. When I start to think about issues like alcohol, smoking, tattoos, working a Sunday shift, dancing, whether someone is baptised, whether they take communion, how often they take communion, the type of music they enjoy, or sing type of music that they play at the front of church. Whether they come to church in a shirt and a tie or whether they come to church in their slippers. Whether they play card games, what denomination they belong to, because we all know that certain denominations can't be saved. Freedom not only sets me free from those behavioural burdens that I have set on myself, it also sets me free from the need to judge others by those same rules. You know what? If someone says to me, I don't like this music, I'm not enjoying this, this is not God's music. Okay, that's fine. You know, I can be free from that. I can say, that's fine. You Whatever. But in my heart, 
if I'm turning around and judging that person because they have a different taste in me, then I've not freed myself from those rules at all. All I've done is says, I'm free from your rules and you're an idiot. That is not freedom. That is not freedom. That is me not loving my brother. I need to say, you know what? I'm free from those rules and so are you. We don't have to love the same things. We don't have to enjoy the same music. If you want to play poker, great. Don't gamble your wealth away. And if you don't like poker, that's okay. I won't insist that you come to my poker nights. Do you see what I'm saying? We are free not only from the burdens of behavioural expectation that others put on us, whether they're from rules or otherwise, but we are free from the need to drag people into ours. We don't have to judge others. And when we do, we haven't freed ourselves from the burden. All we've done is indulge ourselves from your rules and impose mine on you. Everyone should be free and they should look a lot like me. That is not freedom. Faith expressing it in itself in love, that's what counts. The kind of love that not only restrains myself in order to avoid harming you. Not only do I exercise my freedom with care, but I exercise my freedom with generosity. I go out of my way to love you. If you broke down on a Sunday morning, I hope that someone would skip church and go and help you. I really hope that would happen. I hope that you would go out of your way to have dinner with your estranged family, even if the only place they'll invite you to is a pub. I hope that you would do that. I hope that you would have someone in your own home, even if they stink even if their language is terrible, even if their kids are really poorly behaved and they might damage something in your home. Heaven forbid, even if they bring beer. Do you know, you hear what I'm saying? You are free from those expectations. You're also free to let others, to love others, despite how they are. I think I've made my point. God's love is not discriminating. And ours should not be either. We are free to love those people as God has loved them. And as God has loved us. And again, I say it, go back to when you accepted Jesus. That moment in time, that grace that we were shown, that's the grace we still live in. We still live in it. And abusing our freedom. Abusing my freedom to say, hey, you've got to look like me if you want to be free. Or abusing my freedom to say, I don't care what you think and I don't care what happens to you. I'm free in Christ. That is not love. So we restrain ourselves, not to earn God's approval, but to love each other. As the music team comes up to sing, uh, uh, we might skip the music team because I've gone so far over time. Thanks for loving me and not calling out. How might I be harming others? Is there anything that I'm doing with such liberty that I actually might be causing someone else harm? Have I even stopped to think, does this cause a problem for someone?
Might this be an opportunity for me to show restraint? What rules can I leave behind in order to love others better? I'm going to pray for us. And instead of hearing a great song, you're just going to hear me again. But I pray that you've heard from God. And I pray that you've been challenged as I have been. I, I can only give you a glimpse of what I've been challenged with, but I pray that that uh, is there. Lord, thank you. Thank you for setting us free. Thank you for setting us free, not only from the burden of a set of rules that we could never, ever, ever come, to, come up to speed with. We could never meet. We could never match that expectation. Thank you for setting us free from that. Thank you for setting us free in order to be able to love so freely, so with such a liberty and generosity. Thank you, Lord, for laying it down for us so clearly. The law of love is what we're here to do. Lord, I pray that as we consider our relationships with others and our relationship with you, that we would stop trying to earn approval and that we would simply say, yep, I accept that Jesus loved me regardless. Help us, Lord, to live in the gospel, not just consider the gospel the ticket in, but the way to live in your kingdom. We ask all those things in the name of Jesus. Amen.